Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. We talk a lot about the importance of a good college education here in the United States, but the same attention isn't paid to K-12 education, and that is a mistake. Anne-Marie Slaughter, the first woman to serve as Director of Policy Planning in the U.S. State Department, put it like this, early education is a more important national security issue than nuclear weapons. Think about that for a minute. If we want to be serious about better educational outcomes for American kids, that means we need to be putting the same kind of energy and ingenuity behind making our schools function more effectively and equitably as we put into the resilience of our national security. To do this, a lot of smart people are peeling back the layers of a stagnant educational system to unlock the power of data. The more insights we can tap into, the more we can improve upon and personalize our approach to teaching and reaching the greatest number of kids. We need to understand how everything from COVID to climate change to moving homes in the middle of a school year or caring for an elderly relative might impact a student's ability to thrive. And that means analysing every dot on the map of their educational journey, including those outside the walls of a classroom, so we can draw clear lines to a brighter future. I'm Caroline modaresi Tirani. This is American Metamorphosis. The maps that we interface with daily through our phones and our laptops are really the tip of the iceberg of a much bigger complex that most of us don't see or understand very well. I'm Karen Wiggin. I teach at Stanford University in the History Department, a range of courses including Japanese history, world history, and the history of maps. It's probably fair to say that most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking deeply about the maps that we use. But Karen wants more people to be aware that society, in all of its complexity, is reflected in the data points on maps. And that includes acknowledging that the person who wields the pen and gets to draw the map has huge influence on power structures and perspectives. There seems to be this fascinating relationship between sort of civilization small c and mapping and maps in general like what is the correlation how should we think about maps and the development of human civilization so my favorite way to encapsulate that comes from a scholar at berkeley named mary elizabeth berry she has said maps are strange because map makers are strangers meaning Those who need maps are people who do not already have local or oral knowledge in their heads. 
Who doesn't have that knowledge but wants it? A ruler who has come in or been appointed from outside. So what we consistently can see, one pattern in the record, is that conquerors and their agents who they send out to rule territories that they didn't grow up in are the ones who are most eager to make and pass on cartographic documents that encapsulate the information they need to extract resources and to control military access points, to understand spatial relationships, to gather the and collate data about population and productivity and tax rates in a, in a spatial matrix. This isn't just a historical thing, right? Like whoever has control over the map outlines we see today can wield enormous influence, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Starting in effectively the 1990s with the rise of the internet, we've had a second big revolution in cartography, which I would say we're still learning to wrap our minds around. And now the tools that are available to redraw those kinds of lines are certainly more fast acting than a pen. I think we're watching the evolution of political systems in the United States this year with the redrawing of redistricting of our electoral maps. Um, that's a, the latest really very hot topic, I would say, in contemporary cartography. Maps are political, and they display quite literally, in the case of redlining and gerrymandering, who has the competitive edge when it comes to power. But if different people had the opportunity to draw maps in the first place, think marginalised communities, then we'd have very different data points, different pictures, and ideally, more equitable outcomes. Maps would be more honest in exposing where society is failing and what it could be. There's an expression for this in Karen's world. It's called countermapping. What is countermapping? What does that mean? To me, it means... Very simply, one of two things. That is the creation of maps that those who have traditionally held the reins of power either could not make or would not make. Could not make because they are maps that come out of experiences on the ground that people in power do not share. They simply don't have the information. They don't know where the birds fly. They don't know where my grandmother read stories to me under the apple tree. The other branch is creating maps that those in power would not make. They could, they have the information, but they'd really rather not make it public. In that category, some examples might be where are people assaulted? Where are toxic waste dumps? What are the sources of funding behind some of the glorious, romantic parts of a a world, a place that that might actually have roots in activities we're not terribly proud of. Maps feel like they should be for everybody, but they're not necessarily representative of everybody and certainly not representative of everybody's needs. And if you don't have your needs reflected, then you're not going to be able to get ahead. It's going to fundamentally impact your ability to compete. It sounds like there is a real equity component to cartography that people might not even really be aware of. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
The key is to broaden the range of people who are allowed and empowered to ask questions and who have the technology to generate maps and share them with a broader public so that their vision of what's important that's happening in the in our shared landscape gets seen. I mean, democracy is a hectic, crazy thing. And if you really bring democracy into cartography, you're going to get some unexpected results. We spoke to Karen because we really wanted to get into a different mindset to talk about something really thorny, but really important, educating the next generation. And we wanted to get you all thinking about it from a new perspective. Because what if we could apply the philosophy of countermapping to the K-12 education system? What if we realised that just gathering standardised test scores and year-end grades wasn't creating a full picture? You're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. In our fourth season, we're talking not just about competitiveness, but resilience. This is a time of great uncertainty, untenable geopolitical tensions, shaky economic forces, and the sweeping impact of climate change are all creating a state of heightened stress and constant change for us and the next generation. And industries, institutions and individuals are asking how they can prepare for the unknown while staying ahead. In each sector, that requires redefining competitiveness, measuring not just dollars and cents, but the holistic impact of business practices and public policy on society. Because learning to adapt today in the face of adversity means pursuing long-term solutions and more equitable outcomes. It means understanding how to build resilience on a granular level in order to make big picture change. And when it comes to education, understanding the unique needs of individual students allows us to countermap the system, to see patterns and problems that your typical visualization may have missed. Because if we don't give every kid the skills and encouragement they need, we jeopardize our own future as a nation. I'm the first in my family to go to college and graduate college. And I did it with very little information. And as I grew older, it just became so incredible to me what some people have access to and some people don't. I'm Paige Kowalski. I'm the executive vice president of the Data Quality Campaign, and we advocate for policies and practices that make data use possible at every level. When we're talking about data and education, what do you mean? Like, what kind of data? Data is really any information that a parent or um, a state legislator, uh, a, a teacher, a community-based organization needs in order to make the decisions that they need to make. 
It can be robust and include multiple data points from several sources. We think of test scores and grades and demographics about students as objective information, but can also be subjective. Can include teacher observations or student surveys or school climate data. All of that is just the information that we all use that when put together, help us all make better decisions regardless of where we sit. Making better decisions means better outcomes for all students, regardless of background, race or gender. That starts with creating ways to gather and access the data so that teachers and administrators know where to look. Page believes that states can play a leading role in making that happen, helping to fund and build the technology that will make students' information both easily digestible and secure. Analytics are expensive and districts often don't have access to the kinds of expertise to develop those. So there's a real state role there in supporting teachers and providing dashboards and tools, analytics uh, to teachers. And at the same time, we need to be really clear about the ethical considerations and the responsibilities that our educators and our policy leaders have to use that information in ways that only support young people and, and, and don't lead to any harm. One of the best examples we've seen of this um, in terms of delivering data to teachers is in the state of Georgia. So what Georgia did was build a way so that the teacher can log into their local system like they do every day, but be able to pull down information that the state has on those students over time. So that when the seventh grade teacher gets their class roster in September of those 25 children, they can see how those students have performed on tests and courses and grades, um, attendance patterns over their educational journey. Kids walk into the seventh grade with six years of education behind them, six years of attendance patterns and behavior patterns and understandings of fractions and and not and and different reading levels um, and having access to that information about this student's educational journey is really helpful in helping that teacher work with that student as an individual and work with their families. So I can see you getting very excited about this because you're a data person and this is what makes you nerd out on this kind of stuff. What kind of outcome difference did teachers and did students in Georgia see as a result of this introduction of being able to see the educational curve, the educational growth or the educational history of students? Yeah. So I think that is a little bit of a $64,000 question. The tricky thing about data use is that data just gives you information. It's not, it, it can help you change your own practice. It can help you better teach, but it doesn't make you do it. So if success and performance change isn't part of the metric that you think we should use to, to see if something's working or not, what metric should we be using? Is it teacher satisfaction? Is it student satisfaction? Like, what is it? So... What's interesting about Georgia in particular is because this is a state tool, the state knows exactly who's using it and how often. And what they have found since they launched it is that the number of questions asked and answered grows exponentially year over year. There are more and more teachers using it. And you can ask any teacher this, they are finding value. 
after they gave teachers access, they built out the parent tool. They've since built out a student tool. They just keep adding to it because one thing we know is that sort of data begets data. It snowballs. People want more, especially if you're doing it well and delivering something of quality. For the Georgia scenario Paige described, where teachers have a plethora of information at their fingertips, isn't widespread. And that's partly because we have what Paige calls an incoherent national K-12 system, one that is decentralised and can be dictated by the whims of local politics. And as we learn from Karen, whoever wields the pen has great power. The US has 15,000 school districts across the country, and 15,000 school boards that have enormous sway. That means individual attitudes towards data determine who gets more of it. And as we've seen in the last few years, American attitudes on having more information aren't always positive. Information is the very heart of transparency and democracy. You cannot hold your leaders accountable, whether they're school board members or your state legislator or your governor. You cannot hold your leadership accountable if you don't have information about what they're doing and what impact it had. So it's critical to get that information out. Data is hard in this country. While people want information, there's a real incentive, I think, out there to just kind of keep going at it the way we've been going at it and to not make big change. I think it's a poignant point you landed on, which is like, we like to do things the same. Yeah, it's difficult for schools and districts and even state education agencies to be innovative, to take risks, to be bold. You need very visionary leaders um, that are willing to take the bows and arrows if if doing something new or differently doesn't work or it isn't popular. And the path of least resistance is to just keep complying with what you're required to do. The building blocks for a data-informed approach to education were laid more than 20 years ago, when the Bush administration passed No Child Left Behind, a landmark and controversial piece of legislation that made a broad number of changes to our national K-12 system. For the first time ever, states were required to assess students in math and reading levels based on national standards. The information was then broken down by age, race, ethnicity, income status, gender and more. It gave a clear view of who was failing and where. And that was a good thing. Did you like that? That was a very good thing. But people didn't like it. Not everyone liked it, Paige. Why didn't everyone like it? Because we had transparent information about how students were performing in every single school in America. Who was getting upset about that? If you bought a home and you loved your school and every year they talked about how 90% of their students were at grade level and you realize that grade level had been defined by the district itself, and you realize the assessment that determined that they were on grade level was written within the school, and so they could say that, you thought you made a great investment in your neighborhood, in your family, in your child. And now a state assessment comes along and says, actually, the students in your school are nowhere near grade level. And now you've told a family that maybe their investment isn't as strong as they thought, that they have not made maybe as strong a decision for their child as they meant to. And as a parent, I could tell you that would be absolutely devastating for me to learn. 
In 2015, No Child Left Behind was replaced with a new piece of K-12 legislation called the Every Student Succeeds Act, or ESSA. While there are many similarities with standardised data collection and action, the updated policy provides a more flexible framework for states to act on their own information in lieu of federal guidelines that punish underperforming schools, a divisive element of No Child Left Behind. ESSA really took the fact that people liked having transparent information about schools and double down. So they then required more disaggregations. Now we're looking at shining a light on um, homeless students, um, military-connected students, students who are in foster care. People wanted information. I think people also finally started to realize for the first time ever, we were shining light on groups of students that year after year after year, our school systems were not serving very well. And it sort of posed to us in our own communities, in our own schools, what are we going to do about that? Are we okay with that? And if we're not okay, what are we going to do? And that was really powerful. It was really powerful to see um, that for students of color, particularly Black students, for our English language learners, for our low-income students, that year after year after year, our schools were not serving them well. The key point here is about identifying and investing in making these changes in counter-mapping education as early as possible if we want resilient, competitive and diverse American leaders in the future. The American dream gets talked about a lot. And I think education is a key thing and a key player in that of how do I actually improve the outcomes and improve my life from where I grew up. I don't think there's one silver bullet to kind of deal with the equity issues and the the opportunity and access to opportunities here in in America but like I do think it's going it's a huge thing and a huge lever and if we can figure out how to pull it correctly I think it can unlock a lot of doors I'm Kelsey Clark. I'm a managing director and partner at Boston Consulting Group in our education, employment, and welfare practice. Um, So a lot of my work is focused on education and working with districts, with states, cities, all focused on that topic. Kelsey believes that pulling out the personal stories from data is crucial to raising kids of all backgrounds and socioeconomic levels to reach milestones. Not letting students fall behind isn't just a box-checking exercise. This stuff matters for later in life profoundly. You specialise in early childhood education and K through third grade. But why are those years so important, particularly as it relates to American competitiveness? So leading up to third grade, kids are learning to read. And then moving forward, you are reading to learn. And so it's just really important that you actually hit that milestone at third grade. Otherwise, you're just going to end up behind, right? Because I'm I'm not actually getting the content. There's a lot of research and a lot of studies that show, you know, that's the thing that's connected to with, are you more likely to graduate high school, go into college, a higher wage? And so how do we actually invest early to make sure kids are meeting that key milestone? Because studies have also shown even after remediation, they're less likely to actually catch up once they get behind after third grade. This is the core of why education is so critical to our future as a nation. It's the elusive bridge between where we could go and where we begin to fall behind. It's the step not taken, 
the parachute not pulled in time. What's at stake in education isn't just about getting better. It's about eliminating any holes that could make things worse. I think about how we condemn kids as well if they don't meet these milestones. Not all schools in America are failing. Not all schools have poor outcomes. But we do see a huge divide based on income and race. How can data be used to address problems of equity? So, for example, we know that attending pre-K has, a, you know, you're much more likely to then be kindergarten ready. If you're kindergarten ready, you're much more likely to be reading on grade level on third grade. But what we found is that program might need to look a little bit different. There might be a neighborhood where it's like, actually, I have two jobs. Eight to three pre-K isn't going to work. I actually need to drop my kid off at seven and pick them up at seven. And so then it's up to the district to know, like, well, then what does that look like? How do I actually meet parents where they are? Meeting parents and kids where they're at means being able to intervene in ways that extend beyond the borders of a school campus. It's getting at that idea of a more holistic picture that Karen and Paige talked about, of making a map that truly represents everybody, and then getting that information into a teacher or administrator's hands. That means getting as granular as taking into account how a mid-year move might affect performance. So we found that a student that moves in the middle of the year has much lower outcomes. And you're talking grades, right? When you're talking about outcomes. Yeah. So we're talking about like they're much less likely to be reading on grade level um, or less likely to be meeting those key milestones along their journey. So that's what the data says. But then you have a like, well, why? A lot of it is because of the housing mobility, right? They They were on a you know, a housing subsidy and they actually got evicted and they had to actually move locations. And so the district has obviously limited impact on like those types of things. But what they did do is say, this is really impacting our students. How do we actually work with shelters and with nonprofits to also address the things going on outside of education, but we know are having a huge impact on the educational outcomes for our students. So that's actually leading to some policy changes now. And we're looking at like, how do we actually create if you have have young children that you provide some stability in the housing so that you don't have those middle of the year moves because we know that they have such an impact on, on kiddos. We tend to think about these problems separately, right? Like we don't often talk about and correlate somebody's difficult educational journey with the other factors that could lead to that negative outcome, right? Like, so we talk about kids with bad grades or failing grades, but we don't necessarily talk and think about like, well, what if they had somebody at home that fell ill and they were having to care for them? Think about what we've just gone through with COVID, you know, like, and that certainly was happening to children across the country. How good are we at the moment, Kelsey, at thinking about some of these external factors when we are factoring in education and educational standards and outcomes for kids in this country? I think it's really hard. And I would say that's probably one of the real challenges is we know that educational outcomes are impacted by a number of things. And you need to be thinking about the whole child. But it's really hard to actually get data on not only the the educational experience they're getting, but what's the family situation? What other health, what other things are going on in the community that we know are actually impacting what's going on in the the schoolroom as well? And so I think that's a real limitation right now is you can only go so far. And if we had the ability, I think, to actually cross over some of those and, and really get a holistic picture, 
we can then start thinking about how do we address some of the issues that are impacting a number of different things in, in these kids' lives. Those number of things kids are facing today are trickling down from the uncertainties facing society at large into the classroom. The stresses of geopolitical conflict, the financial tensions of inflation and looming recession, and the continuing ripple effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Results of the first national assessment conducted since the beginning of the pandemic were released this October, and they painted a grim picture. Math and reading scores fell across most states among 4th and 8th graders. For Kelsey, connecting those dots, for educators, parents and students alike, is the most important step in using the data we have to gain the information we need. But it's also where our biggest limitations currently lie. Yeah, and this is where I get back to understanding what works and what doesn't work. There's part of our job that is like, how do we even just patch together all the different data sources? Some of this is even bringing in our data scientists, which is very robust kind of models that they can actually build, which is even outside of my realm. And I love data of really trying to understand of what's going on and what is the key thing and the key initiatives that are statistically significant and actually really driving the, the highest impact. And then a lot of our work is also on like, how do we actually display this? So say we even come up with the insight and we're like, oh my gosh, this really matters. How do you actually show that so that everyone can understand that? And then how do I actually get it in the right hands? So that means then working with the district and understanding what kind of decisions are made? What kind of data are they using? What kind of data would you want to know when you're making this decision? How do I then make sure it's getting to you at the right time in the right format, easy to use, that someone can actually then look at that, interpret it, and use it as they're making the decision. And so it's not just purely looking at the data, but really also thinking about how are people using this data and how do you make it really easy for them um, so they can use it and inform decisions. We need dialogue between states and districts districts and teachers, teachers and parents, and ultimately students. Because without transparency, data doesn't reveal, it obscures. And without an accurate map, we can lose our way. Here's Paige Kowalski again. There's more data than ever before. It is a higher quality of data. It is more robust. We're not just looking at single snapshots in time. We can link it longitudinally over time. So we get that movie aspect instead of just a snapshot, a picture. We're linking it to our post-secondary systems, to our, our labor data, so that we can better understand when we invest in K-12, what is that getting us in terms of real whole life outcomes? Are students able to go on and be productive? Did they learn the reading and the math and the social emotional skills and other kinds of things that we all want our kids to learn to go be productive citizens and, and lead um, you know, full successful lives through careers or the military or um, however you want to measure success in an, in an adult life? It may seem difficult to execute, but the more that we think about the design of our education system, a bit like the design of a map, the better equipped we can be to intervene early, to plan ahead, and to chart a path forward. As cartography expert Karen Wiggum will tell you, asking new questions may open up a whole new world we didn't expect. 
And what if you are someone who wants to play a different game and you don't want to compete in the particular capitalist game that is on offer? That's a meta challenge, I would say, to our contemporary policy making and map making practices that would also enrich our communal life to hear more from people who have completely different uh, ideas about what we should value and how we should be moving forward. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week as we go from discussing how we raise the bar for our next generation of leaders to what competitiveness can mean at the highest vantage point.